Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In London, this is The Economist. I'm Josie Delap, and you are listening to what is in fact the last ever episode of Tasting Menu as you know it. It's evolving. From now on, on Thursdays, we'll bring you Editor's Picks. In this new show, you'll hear some of the defining articles from each week's Economist, read in full. Search for Editor's Picks to subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. Alternatively, you can subscribe to Economist Radio to get all our shows delivered to your feed. But now, back to today's tasting menu. Coming up, how to live for free in Silicon Valley, a high-rise renaissance in Britain, and why civilizations create the gods that suit their needs. But first, our cover, which this week predicted a reckoning for big tech. Its future will be defined not in its birthplace of Silicon Valley, but among the bureaucrats of Brussels and Berlin. This week, Google was fined $1.7 billion for strangling competition in the advertising market. Europe could soon pass new digital copyright laws. Spotify has complained to the EU about Apple's alleged antitrust abuses. And, as our briefing explains, the EU is pioneering a distinct tech doctrine that aims to give individuals control over their own information and the profits from it and to prize open tech firms to competition. This new doctrine has two core principles. First, that people should have a say over what happens to their data. You should have the right to access them, amend them, and determine who can use them. This is the essence of the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, whose principles are already being copied by many countries across the world. The next step is to allow interoperability between services so that users can easily switch between providers, shifting to firms that offer better financial terms or treat customers more ethically. Imagine if you could move all your friends and posts to Acebook, a firm with higher privacy standards than Facebook and which gave you a cut of its advertising revenues. Europe's second principle is that competition is good and should be protected. The EU has blocked Google from competing unfairly with shopping sites that appear in its search results or with rival browsers that use its Android operating system. A German proposal says that a dominant firm must share bulk, anonymised data with competitors so that the economy can function properly instead of being ruled by a few data-hoarding giants. For example, all transport firms should have access to Uber's information about traffic patterns. The approach is brave, but not without risk. It may prove hard to achieve true interoperability between firms, So far, GDPR has proved clunky. The open flow of data should not cut across the concern for privacy. Here, Europe's bureaucrats will have to rely on entrepreneurs, many of them American, to come up with answers. 
The other big risk is that Europe's approach is not adopted elsewhere and the continent becomes a tech Galapagos, cut off from the mainstream. But if the European approach works, it could benefit millions, boost the economy and at last find a way to tame the tech giants. To learn more, read the briefing in this week's issue of The Economist. You'll find it on all good newsstands and online at economist.com. The birthplace of the tech giants is unrecognisable from a few short decades ago. Big tech has brought big wealth, and the San Francisco Bay Area now has the highest cost of living in America. So in this endlessly entrepreneurial area, there's a new obsession. How to get free stuff. Alexander Suich Bass, who wrote about this for The Economist Sister magazine, 1843, spoke to The Intelligence, our daily global current affairs podcast. A lot of companies offer referral code. So if you recommend a service to a friend, you would get $10 off that service. One person I spoke to, Felix, who's a founder of a startup, figured out how to hack the system. So he spent $600 on Google ads advertising Uber rides. Um, And they performed so well on Google that people actually clicked through to the ads more often than they did Uber's own. When users would click through to his ad, he would get a credit. And he managed to amass $30,000 in Uber credit. So he rode around for free for a year and perhaps even more impressively ate for free for a year with Uber Eats, the meal delivery service. So he got three meals a day for free because of his hack. The latest episode of our Money Talks podcast looked at what life is like for women working in economics. A new report from the American Economics Association found that almost half of women academics in the field reported discrimination based on their sex. Ava Najapal was a professor of economics at Northwestern University, but left the profession because she found the environment so hostile. I felt like in order to deal with the environment, I had to become really tough. In fact, I know I've been characterized many times as tough as nails. And for economists, that's a compliment. But for me, it was always bittersweet, because if when you become tough as nails as a woman, it turns out you kind of turn off people. <laughs> And, and including the, the very people who do the aggressive questioning, by the way. And so I didn't have that many co-authoring relationships. It didn't, it wasn't fun anymore. But things are beginning to change. And you can listen to Money Talks, Me Too in Economics to find out more. In The Economist Asks, we looked at the often hostile environment of social media. Our guest was Ben Shapiro, a controversial conservative political commentator. His views on religion, gender, welfare and a host of other topics have made him as many enemies as they have fans. But he is now arguing for a return to civil political debate online. We asked him whether he isn't guilty of stoking the very divisions he now laments. If you look at my actual college appearances, right, not just the, the two-minute clipped-out YouTube Shapiro destroys kind of stuff, but you actually look at the exchanges that I have with college students on campus, these are very sober, rational, 
non-demonizing discussions that I have with people. So are you saying that you disown that kind of way of handling clips or of promoting you that rely on, I'm sure we'll hear it after this show as others, Shapiro destroys... McKelvey I mean, or the household I, I, the, cat or AOC or <laughs> whoever it is. I mean, I, let's put it this way. Do, do, is that what I want from the debate? No. Is that a way of getting people to watch deeper content? Sure. I mean, we also have to acknowledge how the market works and the market does work in a way to to generate these sorts of, of views on those sorts of videos. And you can hear that debate in full from The Economist Asks on Economist Radio, wherever you get your podcasts. Back to this week's paper, where a piece in our Britain section looked at the changing skyline of the country's cities. Britain has 20 skyscrapers, taller than 150 metres, only five more than North Korea, and 761 fewer than America. But between the 1950s and the early 1970s, councils threw up a few thousand shorter tower blocks, encouraged by government subsidies. They were proud of their modernist creations. Acton Council issued tickets for the opening of its first tower. Those moving from slums were thrilled by relatively spacious rooms and indoor bathrooms. The architect's initial vision soon darkened. As in America, problem estates became known for concentrating poverty rather than alleviating it, says Daniel Safarik of the CTBUH. Councils that could not foot the bill to maintain blocks in good condition left residents with broken lifts or vandalised communal spaces. By 2002, when a pollster asked Britons to pick out an image of their favourite home, none chose a tower. But London is now going through a high-rise renaissance. With real estate at a premium, the only choice is to build up, though developers are keen to avoid the mistakes of the past. Some think the answer is to build vertical communities with flats nestled between restaurants and concert halls to stop estates growing isolated. All agree maintenance is crucial. Wealthier tenants will stump up for concierges and engineers to fix the lifts. The lights aren't going to go out in the stairwell, says Lindsay Hanley, author of Estates and Intimate History. The bin chutes aren't going to catch fire. From skyscrapers, this week's science and technology section turned its attention even further heavenwards to ask, when did humans start believing in an all-seeing God? A supernatural eye in the sky who cares whether people do right by others is a feature of most of the world's top religions. But it was not always so. Anthropological research suggests that the gods who watch over small societies tend to demand only that people show deference to them. Big gods come later. One theory holds that this is because small societies do not need a supernatural policeman. So a new paper in Nature, led by Harvey Whitehouse of Oxford University, asks which came first, a big god that permits a big society or a big society that requires a big god? Their study of 400 societies over 10,000 years divides the globe randomly into 30 regions. Twelve house societies that offer data on their complexity before and after the emergence of big gods. In ten of these twelve regions, big gods appeared about 100 years after a society took a leap forward in complexity, with populations in the region of one million. That suggests big gods are a consequence of big societies, not a cause of them. 
If Dr. Whitehouse and his colleagues are correct, today's religions did not create modernity, but in the past at least, they held it together. And finally, to Ethiopia, in a piece from our Books and Arts pages. A young Kibet, a portly man in a garish white suit, is taking an oath. Hand raised, expression somber, he reads a pledge to administer his café wisely. Four colleagues nod in approval, but only for a month, prompts one, following the text as he recites it. Ayal Kibet skips over that proviso. His colleagues look up in alarm. So begins a recent episode of Min Litazes, How Can I Help You?, a hit Ethiopian sitcom in which the temporary manager schemes to extend his time in office. Who might this represent? Many viewers have seen in him a reflection of Ethiopia's new Prime Minister, Abiy Ahmed. The series is revolutionary. Until recently, even such gentle satire would have been taboo. Until 1974, Ethiopia was an imperial monarchy. Next came a Marxist junta known as the Derg. And then, after 1991, the iron-fisted rule of the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front. Each regime upheld an absolutist conception of power that left little room for public dissent, least of all satire. That draconian approach created a sophisticated culture of concealment in which resistance was disguised as obedience. You bow in front and fart behind, as a local proverb has it. In Amharic, the most widespread language, this is known as samnawak, or wax and gold, the studied use of words for ambiguous purposes. For centuries, poets and Asmaris, the bards and original satirists of highland Ethiopia, celebrated the glory of feudal overlords in songs that shrewdly hid their true meaning. The subterfuge has gradually become less necessary, and in the last couple of years, several programmes have been testing the limits of irreverence and even criticism of the status quo. The new trend is not about entertainment, says Bahailu Wasi, the director of Min Litazes. The intention is to get a better country. Leaders, too, may learn to take a joke, though this may take a while. At any rate, most people remain wary of mocking Abby directly. Last year, Min Litazes was briefly suspended, reputedly for going too far. Caustic Western-style satire, in which even a leader's appearance is gag fodder, is still unthinkable. One day, perhaps. That's the end of this, the final episode of Tasting Menu. But remember that you can still get your weekly delivery of highlights from our pages. Editor's Picks will be published every Thursday and will bring you a selection of essential articles read in full. Just search for Editor's Picks from The Economist, wherever you're listening to this, to find us. That's all for this week. I'm Josie Delap, and in London, this is The Economist. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.